But we are, um, and I'm excited actually, I'm excited to carry on what was begun last week in a Lenten series that I'm going to be doing until Easter. And uh, today, uh, we just want to be reminded, if you weren't here, uh, that, that while Lenten, or the Lent season, is not commanded of Scripture, it's not something that should bind your conscience to do, it is a tradition that was practiced, uh, we believe originated in around the third century by the Desert Fathers. And it is practiced uh, this day in church tradition, as you know, um, a 40-day period of preparation for repentance and anticipation of the Messianic resurrection on Easter Day. So just think of this as a time, or at least in the context of this sermon, a time when we're asking God to help us see our hearts, asking God to help us see the frailty and the brokenness of our lives, to help us mourn for ourselves and for our neighbors as we mourn even the death of Christ that took upon himself a curse that if we have been meditating properly, we would know justifiably belongs to us. And of course, the exhilaration of his grace that in satisfying the curse, being raised from the third day, we celebrate then on Easter that amazing power, a power that begins a new work in us and culminates, of course, in our own resurrection from the dead. Today, uh, we're going to be looking again at the seven deadly sins, or better, capital sins, or cardinal sins. Now, to remember a little bit of last week, I explained how at, at first take, you might think that the deadly sins, or the cardinal sins, are they're a little bit ordinary, the kind of stuff you see more in soap operas than in the worst headlines of a newspaper. And it's true that, that, that they are somewhat ordinary. You might think them to be mundane. But you see, the, the language of deadly sin probably could be better the capital sins or the cardinal sins. Because what we learn is the seven deadly sins and the reason they were chosen is they're cardinal. That is, they generate other sins. They're generative. They are that which is in our hearts which produce all kinds of toxic and horrible things. Today we're going to be talking about wrath, the deadly sin of wrath. Christ understood its cardinal nature when he relates it to the Old Testament law and it says, thou shalt not murder, and then of course he reminds them that where did murder come from? It comes from that which is in the heart. And so this anger, this, this wrath, if you will, we see it even in our Old Testament reading this morning in chapter 19 and how clearly that is related, uh, this heart sin, this cardinal sin, this desire sin that, of course, leads to many horrible things in the world. And so let us pray as God prepares our hearts to see ourselves and to see Jesus as the answer to our brokenness. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you for this day and for your power as already celebrated in our salvation. And we thank you for even yet another day where we know you're a prophet. You speak to us now through your word. We pray your spirit. We pray your wisdom. We pray your glory and only your glory as we see your words become to us the very living word of Christ. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, I'm taking you back to Ephesians. 
In Ephesians, you may know or remember back in the day that, that it begins with this amazing doxology of God's grace, a grace that brings us adoption and justification and all of these wonderful and great privileges, including sealing us by the Holy Spirit into a great destination of heaven itself. We celebrate in the very beginning of Ephesians a new identity that we're children of God in Christ rather than slaves. We celebrate a new assurance that we're justified by God's grace through faith alone. And we celebrate our new sealing power that is at work in us, the power that was at work in Christ's resurrection now at work at us. This leads then to a prayer. If you could turn it up just a little bit, I find myself... Yeah, thank you. This leads to a prayer in chapter 1, verse 15 and following that that wants to take up that theme of God's power at work in us. It's a prayer for the sealing of the Holy Spirit, that we'd be filled with the Spirit and His power. It's a prayer to experience the immeasurable greatness of His power, quote, in quotes, according to that working of His great might, a new life, in other words, After taking a bit of a redemptive historical survey, Paul returns to this prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. I'll read it again. That according to the riches of his glory, that he might grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Notice your inner being. Henry Skugel wrote a wonderful little book a long time ago called The Soul of, 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 what is it? The Soul, oh, I just blanked it out. Something of man in the soul of man. Life of God in the soul of man. There it is. I told you it was 3.30. That being rooted and grounded, you see, in this kind of love, this dwelling in our hearts through faith, this inner person. He begins to focus on this inner person. And that then gets us to chapter 4. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And that's what brings us to our passage. It's that context. Hungry and starving and desiring the the power of God, the strength of God that begins in our hearts, that begins in our souls, wherein we can live the life of God, the life of God that Paul argues is already within us, awaiting for it to be put on in our outward person. And so, therefore, chapter 4 will begin a series of of commands to put on, put on, put on, and to take off, take off, take off that other stuff. This whole thing, after our passage, will conclude in Ephesians 5. And he says this, Therefore, be imitators of God. Live the life of God. As beloved children, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And so we have an invitation, an invitation to consider what it would mean to live the life of God. And here we're brought to an exhortation to put off anger, to put off anger lest the devil be given an opportunity and we grieve this powerful working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Imitators of Christ, clearly we want to remember that 
In our understanding of, quote, ethics, Christ is at the center of it. He's the prototype of New Testament ethics. And what particularly is referenced here is his sacrificial love, this covenant love that expresses itself in a sacrificial, unconditional way towards us, those of us who are called beloved children. This relationship can't be uh, under-explained. You can't be imitators of God, you see, but without first becoming a child of God. And as a child of God, we imitate the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Walk in love, just as Christ loved you, we just heard. Christ is our measure of perfect love. What is love? Look at Christ. He's the measure of perfect love. Christ is the motivation for our perfect love. John will say in his epistle how it is that perfect love casts out fear, and therefore we love not from fear, not from self-interest in order to get God to get us to heaven. We love because we're already loved in Christ. We love because he first loved us. And therefore, this brings us to this amazing principle. And I want us to keep everything I just said, that little five-minute summary of Ephesians up to this point, in our minds as we now turn to our passage in chapter 4, verse 26 through 32. Notice now, in the context of putting off your old self, which belongs to former manners of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds... We're commanded in verse 26, and here we go. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Then he goes on and picks up in verse 30, and do not grieve or distress, sorrow, the Holy Spirit, by whom you were sealed by the day of redemption, bringing us back to one of our great advantages that we have in chapter 1. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slammer be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now here we go. Be angry, but do not sin. In grammatical terms, this is called a concessive imperative. That's just gibberish for this is a command, but it has a concession to it. It makes a concession, doesn't it? You can interpret it when, but probably better if you get angry or when you get angry. Now, what is meant by that? Anger here is conceded. Anger is conceded in this text. You can't get around it. It's that clear. There's a concession for anger. And you ask, then, how is this so? I mean, think for a minute about this. And I want us to just think a little bit about what's happening here. Anger is a kind of self-evident sin, you would say. I mean, who wants to be the angry young man or the angry radical feminist or the, when is, where there is an angry outburst, we say what? He lost it. We don't typically have a, a positive way of thinking about anger. In anger, we feel that we have lost something of our humanity, don't we? We've lost control. The mark of the well-developed, controlled, and refined human being is magnanimous at all times, moderate, but not angry. 
the temper tantrum is the mark of a spoiled brat. And who wants to be labeled as either spoiled or brat? And so on the one hand, we're thinking, I don't get it. I mean, even common grace, even the world knows that being angry is not something we should give concession to. Well, all of that is true. But then again, there are those who think that Christians are not allowed to be angry. If you're a Christian, you're always to be all smiles. And yet, the Gospels say that on Palm Sunday, that is the beginning of our Holy Week, when Jesus marched triumphant into Jerusalem, the very first thing he did was to walk into the church, quote-unquote, and whip in hand and violently drive the money changers from the temple. He called the officials a gang of thieves, turning over the table, scattering the coins, screaming, zeal for my father's house has consumed me. Not one of Jesus' best moments, you might be saying. I mean, was that just Jesus' humanity coming out right now? Well, we know in Scripture that he was human yet without sin. How do we explain this? I mean, it would be an error. And I'm sorry if I'm going to disappoint you here, but, but if all you know about Jesus was that he was a nice to little children and a considerate of lilies... Well, probably you need to think about this first act of his Holy Week drama, his anger. The first thing he does is to clean up the church before he goes to die for the church. Jesus is angry with us. He comes to church, takes whip in hand, and commands, get out of here. We know Paul describes God as a God of wrath, of anger. Now, it's interesting that even a moderate, balanced-minded guy like Plato had to admit that mere reason is an adequate motivation for human engagement, for good. Reason, he says, helps us avoid doing wrong, but reason lacks the energy that motivates us to do good. I mean, again, even Plato said that in order to know a subject, one must become, he called it, erotic. Eros, that is not necessarily a sexual term by that's a passionate term. In other words, eros is not all bad. In order to know something at its deepest level, wouldn't you agree that one must be able to fall in love with the subject? In dealing with an emotion like anger, it's not good enough to say, don't be emotional. Really? We are created by God to be passionate, caring, and Feeling people. When asked, what perhaps then are you thinking, Pastor? Passion? Well, think about it. Aren't we Christians supposed to be against passion? No. There is no real engagement with a subject, no real growth and development when all we bring to the table is apathetic detachment. Which brings us immediately to this paradoxical quality of anger. We've seen it last week in greed. How in some ways greed has been described in history as, as that which is, is the best in us, 
turning inward to itself and becoming the worst of us. I just gave you a hint, as you're going to see in this passage. Is there a kind of passion, a justifiable passion, a passion for justice, a passion for wrong being righted, a passion of grief and, yes, even anger against that which destroys Humanity for the glory of God. Which brings us then to this paradoxical quality of anger. Much of the greatest good, isn't it true, worked in the world was through anger. The civil rights movement, there was anger. Many historical movements of justice fueled by anger. You just can't say that about any of the other seven. As, as we think about anger especially, let's admit it that we tend to think of the Christian faith in a very platonic way. Christianity sues ruffled feathers. Christians are those who from training over a lifetime know how to sit quietly and listen. Ugh. Okay, so what's happening here? The Bible often says that our Lord is a jealous God. We don't know what to do with that. This God is not a cool, dispassionate, and detached bureaucrat just following the rules, treating everyone without regard or with disengagement. The God of Israel, read it. And the church is a passionate lover. Song of songs. A God who has staked a great deal upon us, who went to great care to make us in his image with a purpose, a great and beautiful and glorious purpose to expand Eden to all the world. And he's just the sort of God that when that beautiful purpose is destroyed, is justifiably described as a God of wrath. Martin Luther extolled righteous anger as the engine that drove him on to some of his very best work. I suspect some of you could articulate that. He said it this way, quote, I never work better than when I am inspired by anger. For when I am angry, I can write, pray, and preach well, for then my whole temperature is quickened. My understanding sharpened, and all mundane vexations and temptations depart from me. And so maybe that's what's happening here. We've got to reprogram before we go forward here. It says if you are angry, or when you are angry, invoking this tradition of wrath, not as a bad word. I know. You've come into this gospel-centered movement that we call ourselves, and we are. But the gospel, don't ever forget it, is the gospel of God's wrath not taken away, but satisfied. Did you know that? One of the most important words of our, of our tradition, of our understanding, it's a word in the Bible, by the way, it's not just made up, it's the word we translate propitiation. Mm, big word. 
Propitiation. The word to satisfy. Why would you want to satisfy wrath? Except that that wrath, the kind that being satisfied, is noble and good. Yes, passionate, but just. And there we have it. Much of the bad that happens in the Bible, though, occurs as a byproduct of anger gone bad. That's a curious phrase, isn't it? I didn't say anger is bad, anger gone bad. It's the resentful anger that made Cain kill Abel. The first time the Bible mentions rage, that fraternal rage leads to this first fratricide, if you will. This first brother killing brother. In anger, Jonah refused to obey God's call to go to Nineveh and fled in the opposite direction. Jesus' first sermon at his hometown synagogue in Nazareth ended in the crowd's anger. And it was that anger gone bad that then led them to kill Jesus. That made them shout, crucify him, crucify him. There is a kind of anger gone bad that is the object of this passage and the object of even this sermon. I mean, we can readily number anger as one of the deadliest of the seven deadly sins if we understand it as angry gone bad. We are our worst when we are angry, even if we can be at our best when we're angry. You see? So anger is, sure, it's something of a natural response to the face of injustice. It's an acknowledgement that this is not the world as it meant to be, not the world as God intended. Anger should be expressed, though, preferably in the church, in prayer, in conversation with God. We have a God who is good enough and great enough to receive our anger, to take even the most raw human emotions and weave them into his purpose. But anger can be expressed in a very bad way. And it really comes down to a selfish way or an ingrown way or all the words now that explains what Paul means when he talks about putting aside things like bitterness, this uncontrolled emotion, etc. Think about it this way. We must be cautious in urging anyone to say, just let it out. If you heard this sermon saying that, then you would hear the wrong thing. Just let it out, your anger. Wrong. Wrong. Think about what Christ says in the scripture. Vengeance is mine. There is vengeance. There is an anger says the Lord, but it's not ours. Gross injustice, great anger, ought to be given not to ourselves ultimately, but to God as an offering, as a confession, and then working into the anger of God in a way that's loving. Did you you hear that? Could it be possible that we could find a way of anger that could be a 
a topic of love? It has to be. We know that love is the summation of all the law. It has to be. We see it in Christ. Again, be imitators of Christ who acted in love, and yet somehow his love acted in anger. But what kind of anger was it? Was it resentful anger? Was it bitter anger? Was it selfish anger? Hardly. I hope I've got you your attention. Let's pick back up here. So what is it? What are the sins of anger? Very briefly, they're listed here. He talks about bitterness. Bitterness comes from anger that is not dealt with properly. Anger suppressed, maybe. Anger at least shows a welling up of passion rather than sloth, you could say. Which may be as deadly, the sloth. We'll talk about that sometime later. I think I'll be in Compline this week, by the way. So come to the Compline service. You'll hear about sloth. Yet we seem in so many ways to have lost our capacity for righteous outrage. But bitterness comes from anger that is not dealt with properly. Rage. I was reading a book on anger. The first word of Homer's Iliad is menin, which means rage. Sing, O goddess, of the rage of Achilles, son of Peleus. Very famous line. You've probably heard it, some of you. You see, it's true. In the Homer as well as in the Bible, that rage gets things going, and yet the Iliad is the bloody account of the results of rage enacted, isn't it? You know the story. That's to say that the early Greeks, like Homer, anger is a chief impulse of action, the source of great and heroic deeds, but deeds that turn, if you know the the Greek tragedies, into great tragedy. And that is something of what we need to hear and what Scripture is saying here. This bitterness, where now it is an anger not for the sake of God's glory, not for the sake of God's beauty and love, but a bitterness, an anger that is against the very people, perhaps even, who are violating God's justice. I have seen this. And in recent days, I've seen it in the last 30, 40 years of ministry. The way in which anger, justifiable anger, can so quickly become about me or us or the person being angry. A way in which there's a kind of self-righteous anger. A self-righteous anger now that forgets that the purpose of anger is love, if it's right anger. There's an old cliche, maybe some of you have heard it, you you hate the sin, you love the sinner. It's true, though. Jesus hated the sin. He died for the sinner. You see the difference? It's incredible. You could speak out against any injustice, but if you do it in a way that builds a a wall between the the guilty and the grace of the gospel, you've done it the wrong way. This is so easy to do. 
We see it especially in the polarization of, of the politicization of justice. The moment justice gets politicized, it's going to get really garbaged. Because now it's a them and us. Now it's a win and lose. I mean, if I, the pastor of this church, is, is desirous to help, say, any one of you, let's just say, uh, deal with your racism, I would need to be careful that the way I do it is in a manner that condemns the racism but inspires you to forgiveness and to repentance. And there's a whole different way that you can do this. You can speak to someone and you can listen to someone and you can talk with someone, not at them across the street, but you can engage this person, showing how devastating and horrible and wrong and bitter is racism. Showing how it is opposite of what God made and, and the nature of humanity to be. And you could go on and on and on with that. But you would do it in a way that would elevate them as one of the humanity. And, and inspire them to be a better humanity, one that they would want to be. You see the difference? Versus screaming at them, you racist. What's that going to do? That's going to make me feel more justified and righteous. That's about it. Because the implication is what? I'm not. I'm not. This is this idea you see. It's really amazing how wise scripture is. Put away all bitterness. That hard-heartedness of resentment. Put away this rage. While it might give you courage, find the courage elsewhere. Put away the screaming at one another. Proverbs 17 says it this way, the beginning of strife is like re a releasing water. That's let it go. But it begins strife, it's saying. The beginning of strife is always like a releasing water. It feels good. Ah, oh, that felt good just to blow it. I hear that all the time. Man, I just told blank off. It sure felt good. Well, you know, you, let's see what happens two days, three days, four days, one year later. See if it's really still good or if it's not now a tragedy. A broken relationship. A lost opportunity for a repentant sinner to find grace. It says on, therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. Slander. That's what anger, uh, uh, unchecked or whatever you call it, not the good kind can do. Slander. Anger leading to selfish assessments. Objectivity is all lost. Again, depicting someone in the worst light to make a point. Malice. Again, you might have a righteous cause, but have malice in your heart towards those whom you are, who, who, who are the, uh, you know, the, the doers of that. Malice is wrong. Think of it this way. Can you imagine a Jesus Christ walking into the temple with a whip, a whip? But somehow we know 
from this passage as we're to be imitators of him in love. That however and whatever was happening there, there was no bitterness, there was no rage, could have been passion. There was no slander, accusations in the way that that are untrue, no malice that is ill intent towards those who he ran out. You see the paradox. On the one hand, anger can be righteous indignation at injustice. On the other hand, anger can be blind rage in which we see nothing but ourselves and our diminished sense of self reacting with murderous rage. Anger is sorely one of the most self-delusional and destructive aspects of our heart. Usually self-destruction and potentially violence follows the seven deadly sin of wrath. Phew, that was exhausting. Pretty intense. Well, let's step back and see what the scripture says we can do. It says, do not let the sun set on your anger. Now, first you might take that uh, and trivialize it. It's not, okay, it, uh, the sun goes down at 7.05, we got to have it all gone by then, so I better blow it out now while I can, something like that. No, that's not at all what it's talking about. It's not, or don't go to bed until you've solved your anger. I've said it before. I've seen some of the worst things in the world in marriages when somewhere around 12 o'clock they are driven to, they got to go, they got to solve this problem before they go to bed. And, oh, almost 80% of the bad stuff happens in that little hour afterwards. <laughs> I remember counseling a couple with that idea. And I said, man, you got to go rest. <laughs> Take a break. No, of course the point is not in this trivialized way. The point is be intentional about managing your anger. Be intentional about submitting your anger to the Lord. That the Lord might like, weed out all the bad stuff. That you might find a way, you see, to, to give what now our passage is going to tell us to give after this. In other words, it's, it's don't let it move into a contention. Well, the Proverbs. James says it this way. Let every person be slow to get angry and then refuse to indulge such anger so that you don't sin. It's reiterated. There it is again. There is a kind of anger that we should be cautious about. Anger is a powerful passion. So what we're hearing here is be careful with it. Don't just let it go. Don't just let it out. Rather, be intentional about your anger. Again, let every person be slow to be angry. Don't rush to it. And when it is justifiable, then refuse to indulge such anger so that you don't sin. Ecclesiastes says, don't be quick to anger, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. That is to say, paraphrase, anger is to be disciplined, such as to refuse to indulge such anger that is unloving, unrighteous, self-serving, self-justification, ding. You know, I make up words all the time. 
Proverbs says, a brother transgresses like a strong city, and the contentions are like the bars of a castle. Once you have offended someone with your unjust anger, it's like a wall goes around them, the proverb says. You want to reach someone who you think is doing an injustice? Well, you should, first of all, because we were those who were doing an injustice when Christ came to this world, all of us. Well, if you want to reach them on behalf of Christ, you don't offend them, or at least not intentionally. And that's the point. There's two warnings here then, and it makes perfect sense now in the context. Verse 27 says, to, to not do less is to give opportunity to the devil. That is an open door. We know that Satan is looking for an opportunity to cause you and those whom you have been called to witness and love in Christ. He's looking for every opportunity to get it off track. That's the point here. Looking for opportunity to derail the Holy Spirit's work of building love and unity in the body of Christ. And so don't give the devil an opportunity. Don't let your anger go bad. And then notice how it's also the case that anger then let go. It can be all kinds of evil intentions. It can be the result of discord rather than repentance and harmony. And according to the Proverbs, it originates from a proud heart. An example, he who is of the proud heart stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will be prospered. It's a beautiful passage. How do we get there? How do we get there? Well, if you notice the passage, what ends is, a, is an exhortation towards forgiveness and grace. It's repeated in 2 Corinthians 2. Let me read it to you. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, Paul is saying this. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. You see, that's his anecdote to Satan, is to forgive, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Think about it. The greatest threat to Satan's schemes is forgiveness and grace. Not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die, says Annie Lamott. I put it up on the screen earlier. That's pretty graphic, isn't it? But I think it makes a point. There was an illustration that I read about, I think it was around 4 o'clock this morning. It goes like this. There was a wife and a mother, it's a true story, whose husband was murdered in cold blood right in front of both her and her daughter. It goes through the tragedy of it all, of course. But then she's asked, how on earth were you able to go on with your life? And here's her quote. I'll read it fully. Well, she said, that very moment as I stood there over his horribly bloody body, I started saying the Lord's Prayer. I got as far as forgive us our sins as we forgive the sins of others. And I said at that point, Lord, you have forgiven so many of my sins, so I guess you're expecting me to forgive others of their sins. 
She said, I will try to do that, but you'll have to help me every day not to be destroyed by anger. Every day, she repeats. And the Lord gave me that wonderful gift. I was able to forgive. I let God be angry with them or punish them or forgive them or whatever the Lord chose to do with them. I chose to forgive. That's right according to what Paul says. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Let me take care of vengeance. The gunman killed one of the most wonderful, she's, she's still speaking, the gunman killed one of the most wonderful men in the world, and none of them was ever convicted of the crime. But my anger was no match for God. God wouldn't let the anger of it kill me. She's got it right. Satan was right at her doorstep, waiting to destroy her and her child with the sin of wrath. She gave it to God. Certainly she prayed for justice. Certainly that's not the problem. But she didn't let it eat her up with bitterness and with resentment. She acknowledged that God decreed all things whatsoever. That there is a kind of healing that's maybe greater than the outward healing of a body. There's a kind of healing that she expected that is supernatural and greater than the healing of her husband's death, at least immediately. He will be healed of his death. He will be raised from the dead. But in the meantime, both she and her daughter were healed of all sorts of other things, inward sins. In this case, healed of the horrible, tragic, acidic sin of wrath. Now, I tell you this story because I want to ask you an honest question. In this day and age and all of the justice movements, can we even conceive of that kind of wrath not gone wrong? Does that story somehow challenge you as it did me to think, oh, but isn't that just being apathetic? Isn't that just being, you know, uh, slothful, as we'll see? Not having a passion for justice? No, she had a passion for justice. She believed in justice. But she also understood that justice and the kind that she wants, not only for herself and for the world, but even for that person who murdered, is a kind of justice that has to go through the cross. And here we're brought to this beautiful moment in our service as we think about the cross of Christ. Every time we look at the cross... It is not only a mirror of us at our worst, Christ hanging on a cross, taking the wrath of God against what? In this case today, my wrath. My wrath gone wrong. That unrighteous and unjust and ungraceful and unloving wrath. Every time we look at the cross, we should look at our, now today, cardinal sin of wrath. Our angry, murderous, worst still thoughts. 
The cross is a window whereby we are able to peer into the deepest mystery of the heart of God. When God had a grand opportunity to strike out decisively in justified vengeance against us, and he did. Do you believe that? Was he justified in his vengeance against us? In the manner in which we have sinned against him and creation and the world? Until we come to grips with our brokenness this Lenten season, we will not understand the cross at all. It will look to you like an injustice. How could God bring to death a perfect, loving man? Answer, he didn't. He brought to death an imperfect, sinful man. In this covenantal, contractual way, the scripture teaches that Christ was born into sin. Christ, in a covenantal way, became sin. I'm quoting scripture. That we might become the righteousness of God. The divine transaction on the cross. And there you've got the secret to God's justifiable wrath. A kind of wrath that finds itself satisfied and a justice and a kind of justice that brings grace. Let me say that again because this is your, your mantra. A kind of wrath that satisfies justice but in a manner that satisfies grace. Where we have this cross is the most profound thing in the world for there justice is satisfied. The vengeance of God justifiably against us is satisfied not ignored satisfied but how was it satisfied in a manner that was sacrificially loving so that the very ones who sinned are invited to grace by letting him satisfy the curse for you that's what Christianity is all about. That's what the devil would love for you to miss about this idea of wrath. Let us prepare our hearts to come to his cross.